Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer. I'm joined, as always, by Daily Beast reporter and Fever Dreams co-host, Kelly Weil. Kelly, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How's it going, Will? Good. I'm glad you're here because I have a big announcement. I'm leaving Fever Dreams to become the fourth Try Guy. Oh, my goodness. I knew they were <laughs> angling for you. I knew they were trying to poach you. I knew this day would come. I hope you have a really good time, like, parachuting off of, I don't know, like, oh, I don't know, some sacred monument and having to make an apology video. We're going to take it in a whole new direction. The Try Guys try Adrenochrome. The Try Guys... <laughs> try overthrowing an election the try guys steal a ballot machine so we've got all kinds of ideas but really this is a little outside of our bailiwick but you know i think we also cover a lot of like kind of online dystopia stuff and what could be more grim than the try guys saga kelly for those who aren't up on like eugene eats an all-you-can-eat buffet or whatever (laughs) can you explain briefly who the try guys are and why they're in hot water Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the Try Guys, they kind of emerged out of the cocoon of like 2014 BuzzFeed, I want to say. And there were these four guys, four guys initially. They would try things. There were guys who tried and they'd try like a zany pizza. They would try taking care of a toddler like a woman would. And they eventually their star got too bright. They split from BuzzFeed. And this one guy, Ned, really cultivated this idea that he was like a wife guy. Real family man, loved his wife. Well, it just emerged that he cheated on his wife with his producer and the try guys put out a video apologizing but also sort of with the tone of like how you would announce that a dog died just really 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 grim so will you definitely have big shoes to fill there (laughs) well this is sort of just what i wanted to talk about was the try guys apology video now look ned fulmer try guy trying adultery shame on you (laughs) not good But the way that they treat this announcement, you would think they found out Ned was a cannibal. Oh, dude, it's like we had to take Ned down into the backyard and put him down. Can't believe he did this to us. You know, unfortunately, there is like one or two sponsored posts that still feature Ned. I'm sorry you'll all have to see this cursed visage one more time. There's kind of an implication. (laughs) It's getting a little in the weeds. But like they're like, we've we've kind of purged the archives of Ned. Ned is not in any video that prominently features Ned that we had coming out. We have locked away in the vault. We've set fire to 
to it. However, we do have a couple sponsored posts that involve Ned that we have to run. I like the implication that there are some sponsors who are like, no, I want the cheating try guy, the philanderer <laughs> as part of our brand. The ads must go on. I'm actually glad you bring this up because this is sort of like I'm looking at our show notes going ahead. And this is sort of our uh, Jerry Springer episode. So this is a really this is actually i think quite on theme this is the philandering episode of fever dreams yeah this is when <laughs> this is when we get into it okay what a world and i think the the perils of sort of building your brand as developing these parasocial relationships just truly fascinating stuff for me the, the cap on it was that it was like the try guy had an affair with one of the food babies what a bleak internet landscape <laughs> we live in now kelly speaking of i guess this doesn't qualify as philandering because he was not married at the time but the big news at this top of the week is our colleague Roger Sollenberger is reporting on Herschel Walker, Republican Senate candidate in Georgia, paying for an abortion back in 2009. Kelly, what's going on here? Right. So Herschel Walker, he's running for Senate in Georgia, running against Raphael Warnock. And Herschel Walker has taken a really hard line against abortion. He is one of these no exception guys, no exception for rape or incest or a life of the mother. As it happens with so many of that genre of man, it turns out he appears to have paid for an abortion back in 2009 to a woman with whom he was not married. It also happened the same year as he had another child by another woman. And shout out to our colleague Roger Sullenberger here because he has been so dogged on Herschel Walker's trail. He's re revealed, I think, how many secret children, Will? Three children that... Four, four children. He's uncovered an entire new family reunion. Exactly, exactly. And like, listen, I want to put this disclaimer up here. Nothing wrong with having a large and unconventionally shaped family. Nothing wrong with abortion. However, Herschel Walker has run on this image of himself as this family man. One kid, no abortion. So the idea that he is behind everyone's backs doing exactly what everyone else does is pretty rich. Okay, so three secret children have been uncovered because and the other is a TikTok star. So the I mean, the story is just so nailed down because Roger here at the Beast, he's got the get well soon card that Herschel reportedly sent this woman this get well card. Also, like a very this card is 13 years old at this point. It looks like very much of that time. It's like a little like cup of soup. It's a cup of soup. It's a cup of soup. Sorry about your abortion. Yeah, I mean, it says rest, relax, recover. And it says, pray you are feeling better, Herschel. He's got the receipt from the abortion clinic. He's got the check image this woman told Roger that was used to pay for the abortion. So really, I mean, this thing is nailed down all kinds of ways. Naturally, Herschel has vowed to sue the Daily Beast on Tuesday morning, which would be roughly as we record this. Now, obviously, given the legal threat, we won't get too much into that. But I will note that as of Tuesday, Tuesday morning, suddenly one of his lawyers is saying, well, let's think about this a little bit. It is 11-12 as we speak and I've not heard anything. So you're right. We won't get too into the weeds, but in full disclosure, so people can understand our process here. So we shall see. So just to sort of pull back for a second, I mean, this is sort of one of the key races to decide control of the Senate. Herschel Walker's running against Raphael Warnock. The lead up to this was that Donald Trump really wanted Herschel Walker to be the nominee. Mitch McConnell supposedly was a little more, I don't know about this, I think correctly so, as it turns out. But I mean, just the amount of just crazy stuff that has come out about Herschel Walker. His ex-wife said he held a gun to her head and said he was going to blow her brains out. That is crazy stuff. And that's not even all of it. He really exaggerated his academic career. Again, we mentioned all the love children. So 
This is really like just a lot to deal with as a candidate. But so far, the Republican Party is sticking with him, even after the abortion stuff. Yeah, it's really wild. And you're totally right to note that there was some, it seemed like some hesitation on the part of maybe more strategic Republicans in drafting this guy. He didn't even seem to be super into the idea himself. Well, he lived in Texas even. Sean Hannity was big on him. I guess he's got Georgia football creds, right? So they want a hometown hero. But I think there's probably a good reason that people from his own party had reservations. And to this point, a few minutes after this reporting comes out, right? Roger drops a story. Herschel Walker says, no, I've never paid for an abortion. I'm going to sue you. Well, people from Walker's own party start coming out of the weeds on Twitter and being like, oh, yeah, the abortion. Didn't you guys know about that? I thought that was common knowledge. Talking about the pundit Eric Erickson, that Eric, son of Eric, who said, didn't everybody know about this abortion? No, I, I missed that one. It is kind of funny to be like, yeah, like, Oh, the abortion? Oh, yeah, we all talk about that. So people might say, oh, these guys are so pro-life. Why are they okay with the abortion guy? I mean, I think a lot of this dates back to Donald Trump when they had this idea of, I believe, King Cyrus in the Bible. And you have this guy who's like a, not at all a religious man himself, but as long as he's going to vote in favor of abortion restrictions, they're fine with it. I mean, what is one aborted child compared to all the ones that all the abortions you could prevent by Herschel Walker's vote on a nationwide abortion ban, for example? Right. Yeah. And this is something, I mean, the hypocrisy is just just totally consistent through Republicans to anti-choice demonstrators. There's so much documentation of people who are anti-choice going and personally getting abortions themselves. This is something, this is a procedure that's existed since the dawn of time. It's always going to exist. Really what they're legislating is how safe it's going to be for people who need it. So it's not actually shocking to me at all that these people have been proximal to abortions, right? These are Donald Trump, of course, always had that attitude of like being a player, being a ladies man. And so you do question his real commitment to this thing. And same with Herschel Walker. He's got kids with multiple women. So it's not really about their personal values. It's not even so much of a, ha we caught you in hypocrisy and now you've got to resign. Well, they don't especially care. It's more about legislating this sort of thing for other people. So look, we've set the table on the Herschel Walker thing. Now it's time to feast. And we got to talk about the character, Christian Walker, who is Herschel's son. We mentioned Christian Walker in the past. He's sort of a Fever Dreams character in his own right. So as I mentioned, he's Herschel Walker's son. He's also a prominent gay conservative, particularly on TikTok, where he says things like, I may be gay, but I don't have to see bros or something like that. Or he loves sort of railing against progressive gay values. And he's sort of a big hit with people who I guess never saw the Milo Yiannopoulos stick back when that was a thing. Yeah, someone described him last night as Gen Z Milo. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I will say he's much less like sort of miserable and, and unpleasant, I would say. But, <laughs> but it is sort of a similar thing in that he's like, it's sort of the shtick is like, can you believe a gay guy is saying this? Like that he doesn't, yeah, I'm not super familiar with his oeuvre, but it's like a lot of, he's like, I'm gay, but I don't like these groomers, stuff like that. And people just lose their minds over it. And he has like a very kind of TikTokified delivery where there's like a lot of like beats to it. So up until now, as the he discovered or the public discovered that Christian had more half brothers and sisters, he'd stayed quiet until Roger's story came out last night. And then Christian fired off some tweets. And these tweets are fair. Christian Walker's mother is the one who was allegedly threatened with a gun by Herschel. Okay, so he tweets, every family 
family member of Herschel Walker asked him not to run for office because we all knew some of his past. Every single one. He decided to give us the middle finger and air out all of his dirty laundry in public while simultaneously lying about it. I'm done. That sort of opened the floodgates when Christian turns on his father and he says things like, you're not a family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women. And here's the issue is Herschel's problem is that his son has such a way with words. <laughs> it's punchy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, he's turned no longer will Christian be yelling at like his fellow classmates at USC or what have you. You're not a family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women, threatened to kill us and had us move over six times in six months running from your violence. You look at that and you're like, whoa. And he finally says, you've lived a life of destroying other people's lives. I mean, this is not what you want as early voting begins. Is certainly not ideal at all. No. And like, listen, this kind of thing is really hard to parse, right? Because obviously your child growing up in a situation of alleged domestic violence, you got to feel for him. But also Christian Walker has sort of hitched his wagon to Herschel Walker in some ways, shilled his dad's merch. He's spoken in at least one campaign event. So it's really interesting to see him kind of performing the calculus here when he's going to stick by his dad's side and when he's going to really come out and say it, back up these allegations. So even just from like, from a, I don't know, a campaign perspective, you look at that and you say, yeah, Herschel's pretty screwed. Yeah. So the, I should say there was also like some deleted tweeting going on. So Herschel, now this is always, look, if you have a history of violence allegations, what have you, I'm describing Herschel's Twitter picture here. It's him with some, <laughs> with some, uh, some boxing gloves on. Like he's coming at you. He's looking directly at the camera. He's going to pop you one. And so he tweets, I love my son, no matter what amid all this. And then Christian tweets, if you loved your kids, you'd be raising them instead of running for a Senate campaign to boost your ego. So really this is a family spat that's playing out in public. Now, sort of one of the funnier things, I don't know if I'd say funny, but one of the odder things about this is now Christian has taken to TikTok and he's saying, we didn't want him to run, but then when he did run, we said, we were told that he was going to get out ahead of his past and put everything out there. Christian, if you believe that, I don't know what to tell you, because can you imagine what that press conference would look like? Okay. All right, everybody. I'm announcing I'm a candidate. Here's my three kids I've hidden. In <laughs> okay. I got three kids and everyone's like, wow, that's crazy. You got three kids. Also, I held a gun to my ex-wife's head. What? Also, I've been lying about graduating from college. What? And then also, finally, I paid for this abortion in 2000. Nine. His primary campaign would have been sunk. That's why he didn't say it. And it's wild now because it's okay. So Christian's saying that he had a plan to get out in front of it. I don't believe that because Herschel Walker went on Hannity last night to try and address these rumors. And you could see on air that even in that moment, he didn't have a plan to deal with this. He is stumbling through. He goes, well, I send cards to lots of people. Right. And so that we should get into the defense that's coming out. So they're saying, well, Herschel, even Hannity has to say, well, I don't know. Hers here's this check you sent this woman and a get well card. And he says, I just love sending cards and I love giving people checks in very specific amounts. A real fan of stationery. No, it's crazy because I've seen smarter Georgia political operatives last night saying, oh, damn, you know how you would handle this. All you have to do is go on there and say, hey, listen, my friend needed money. I didn't know what it was for. I sent it to her because I'm so generous. No, this man drops the ball so just dramatically in the most friendly outlet possible on live TV. It does not look good. No, I mean, it really looked like there was no plan. The other thing I'd say about Christian Walker is, I guess I've been a little surprised by the... First of all, I think he's doing a pretty good job of... Christian Walker is coming off as a sympathetic character. Mm, absolutely. And this is 
sort of interesting for a guy whose entire bit has been being like an internet heel. You just sort of yelling at everyone and sort of tweaking progressive TikTok mores. So he's coming off pretty well and he's doing, you know, I think this image of hurt that he's expressing, I think is pretty effective. And the idea that he's he's now been responding to conservatives who are saying, hey, Christian, can it? You know, this one GOP strategist gave a quote that was like, this kid is a spoiled brat, which is certainly an interesting strategy to take. The other thing I'd add is that I think it's interesting that the Christian Walker jumping ship is coming after the abortion stuff, which like is not really like, oh, my dad actually did something for a woman. I'm out of here. He handled his responsibilities. That is the last straw for me. This was so funny to me because you would think that the secret children would be a bit more personal to him. I mean, on its face, I don't have an issue with Herschel Walker paying for an abortion, right? And so that's male allyship. But that really seems to be the final straw for a lot of these folks. Because again, Herschel Walker has been playing up this idea of they're attacking my family. They're attacking my children who I wasn't hiding. I just never told anyone about. This one is a lot harder to sweep under the rug because it really flies in the face of his stated family values. I think what we're getting at here is I think people may be underplaying the fact that Christian Walker saw the writing on the wall and decided to divorce the Christian Walker brand from the Herschel Walker brand. I think this has become such a sort of thorny story for him that he, he Christian decided, yeah, okay, time to take the break from my dad. And particularly if, if his dad loses, I think Christian is kind of trying to preserve the rude TikTok guy brand. People, I think, may underestimate how well-known Christian Walker is among Gen Z people as sort of like a internet troll, a rude guy. Here on Fever Dreams, we love to chart the sort of the business prospects for these characters. And I think this is probably a pretty savvy move on his part. Oh, yeah. Yeah. TikTok stardom can last a whole lot longer longer than a failed congressional campaign. Absolutely. Okay, Kelly, now speaking of politicians, personalized, spilling out into the public, I believe you've got an item for us on Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's right. Marjorie Taylor Greene, defender of traditional marriage, quote unquote, is getting a divorce. This is her husband, Perry. He filed last week calling their marriage of 27 years irretrievably broken. And listen, Will, I have to keep giving this disclaimer. I'm not opposed to divorce, anything like that. But this is coming from one of the more socially conservative politicians who has railed against liberals, dissolving the family, what have you. So these filings are actually interesting, what we've already seen, because Perry Green initially filed to keep the proceedings private and sealed. He said, might divulge personal information that we don't want out there. And Monday night, actually, while all the Herschel Walker stuff was going on, he appeared to say, screw it, and he just filed to keep the proceedings open. So we might actually get a pretty interesting, intimate look into what exactly is going on in that household. It's very exciting as a reporter. <laughs> it's exciting to me as a nosy person. Like I think I've brought this up before, but, but I believe that in cases of public interest, there should be a third lawyer representing the media and looky-loos <laughs> of all kinds who want to say, because, you know, sometimes like both parties, it's often in their interest to seal things, but it's not in my interest. <laughs> it's like one of these memes where it's like, I consent, I consent, and it's like, isn't there someone you forgot to ask? Me. <laughs> And so I think there should be a third lawyer who says, and they don't even really have to make a great argument, but it's just like when it's like, okay, all right, then I'll seal it. And then this other lawyer can go, your honor, 
Come on, come on. Come on. We, we need something to read on our phones. <laughs> come on. I'll be covering these trials, and it's like every time it's interesting, it's like, well, let's just just let's just discuss this in chambers. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Anyways, back to the Marjorie Taylor Greene stuff. It is, as you note, Kelly, it's also interesting because these sort of the young guns have really been struck by divorce this cycle. Madison Cawthorn getting a divorce as well from his bodybuilder wife. Yeah. Are all the wives in the, this party bodybuilders? That's interesting. Anyway, go on. Interesting. Interesting. How does CrossFit fit in at all this? <laughs> <laughs> so the Marjorie Taylor Greene thing, I mean, we will see how this all plays out. I mean, certainly I think maybe a look at her finances would be interesting. The Maybe Perry has some things to say about Marjorie interest in QAnon. But for me, I think the most interesting thing about this divorce is the Marjorie Taylor Greene's affairs are so wild. And they have somehow, like, they're almost, like, too weird to kind of make it into the public consciousness. Like, they kind of come out and go, huh, that's weird. And she benefits so much from being already this ludicrous figure, from being this QAnon figure, because it's already like, oh, well, that's just Marjorie doing weird stuff. If she were, like, a slightly more normal person, this would be devastating. I think that's right. Like, if a sort of buttoned-up GOP congressman was having an affair with a tantric sex guru, I think people might focus on it a bit more. I mean, explain to me here, what is the story with, I mean, she famously had multiple extramarital relationships one of which was with a polyamorous sex guru. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, backing up here, this is not the first time the Green family has discussed divorce. Actually, Marjorie filed for divorce in 2012 then called it off. But around that time, she was reported to be having two affairs, one with the manager of a gym. I think she had like some stake in some kind of CrossFit situation. And the other was with a guy she met in the gym, Craig Ivy, who bills himself as a, quote, polyamorous sex guru. This guy's interesting. This story came out in 2021 about this affair. And it seems like she was fairly open about it and live your life, non-conventional family structure, what have you. But this Craig Ivy guy, he's a character. He's sort of into professional, I don't know if I'd call it sex work, but certainly sex workshops. He wears gold lame leggings and is really just kind of a new age sex guy. You know, someone who will maybe overshare on Facebook and you're like, that's great that you're going on this journey, but I don't need to hear about it, but someone who's like that professionally. And they seem to have had some form of affair for a considerable amount of time. Also, he's like a Black Lives Matter guy, which is interesting. This guy is also memorable because he dressed up as a Street Fighter character. That was kind of like one of the pictures of him that circulated a lot. He looked like a real tough guy, very hairy guy. And so the whole thing is just very bizarre. I guess at this point, we don't know what prompted this divorce. We don't know if it'll be interesting. But I guess from my perspective, number one, Marjorie Taylor Greene's pretty wealthy. So it should be interesting to see what comes out there. And then Perry Green. I think the world is ready for you to spill the beans. I think there may be a cable news contributorship in his pocket if he wants to, <laughs> to make a run as sort of like to position himself is sort of like a Marjorie Taylor Green like apostate. If nothing else, or like enough young guns in the Republican Party getting divorced that maybe he can be sort of a guide, right? <laughs> Help him down this process. And like, listen, I do kind of want to, <laughs> I do kind of want to bring it back here because, okay, yeah, divorce, you do your thing, Marjorie. But like, this is coming as a whole bunch of Republicans are railing against divorce. I'm thinking about J.D. Vance, who this summer has just these wild comments appearing to insinuate that People in violent marriages should stick it out. Divorce should be a last possible case. And even in Marjorie Taylor Greene's own statement about this divorce, she said that, quote, marriage is a wonderful thing, and I'm a 
firm believer in it. Our society is formed by a husband and a wife creating a family to nurture and protect. Now, forgetting like the anti-gay overtones there, just get divorced, dude. Like marriage rocks if you're into it. But like, I think it's kind of a moral neutral. Like you don't have to go swinging at this thing that's clearly not working for you. No pun involved with the swinging. Just be normal, I guess. Just be normal, I guess. That's all we're saying here, folks. And yet it never works out. Okay. Kelly, who do we have as the guest this week? Joining us this week is Travis Waldron. He is a senior national reporter at the Huffington Post, where he covers Brazil and the politics, which have been popping off this month. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fevered dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right. We're joined now by Travis Waldron. He's a senior national reporter at HuffPost, where he covers Brazil. Travis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Travis, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the nitty gritty of U.S. elections, which are a mess. But Brazil's is kind of weird in its own special way. So I was hoping you could break down for us what it takes to win the presidency in Brazil and what sends it to a runoff. Yeah. So the easiest way to understand it is that Brazil does not, in its presidential elections, have the kind of run up primary process that the U.S. does. And it also isn't a two-party system. So what you have in the first round is basically an open election for all of Brazil's parties to put forth presidential candidates. And in a typical year, they have anywhere from six to a dozen or more candidates. This year, I think there were 11 official candidates. And really, it was a race between four and ultimately a race between just two, which is the current president, Jair Bolsonaro, and Lula da Silva, the former leftist president who governed from 2003 to 2010. What happens is in order for it to end on the first round, one of the candidates has to get a clear majority of votes, so 50% plus a single vote. That's pretty atypical. It's only happened a couple times since Brazil returned to democracy in the late 1980s. And so if nobody gets 50% plus plus one, it goes to a runoff phase between the top two candidates. And that's where we are now with Lula and Bolsonaro going to a runoff on October 30th. So it's not a an atypical scenario. This is generally how presidential elections unfold in Brazil. But the stakes of this one feel pretty high, given the concerns about democracy and, and Bolsonaro's efforts to kind of follow Donald Trump down the path of election skepticism and potentially an all-out challenge to the result of the elections. Well, yeah, let's break down Bolsonaro's politics for people who are less familiar. Why is he such like a 
interesting analog to Trump in Brazil? Well, I mean, really, in a lot of ways, he's a perfect analog to Trump. And in a lot of ways, he's kind of his own creature. Bolsonaro is a former army captain. And Brazil was ruled by a military dictatorship from 1964 to 1985. Throughout his career, Bolsonaro, who's he's been a, a congressman in Brazil for almost 30 years before he ran for president, an obscure right-wing congressman on the fringes of Brazilian politics. And the most consistent aspect of his political life has been kind of his skepticism of democracy and his support and affinity for the dictatorship that ended in 1985 and ultimately gave way to a return to democratic rule in 1989. But in 2018, he sort of, I mean, not sort of, he blatantly followed the Trumpian playbook to the presidency. And, and he did it. There were a lot of similarities in the circumstances, but also some very specific Brazilian particulars to the race. There was anger over a collapsed economy. There was anger at the political establishment, which had been embroiled in a massive political corruption probe. And there was rising rates of violent crime, just a general kind of overarching sense of discontent with the establishment in Brazil. And Bolsonaro was the guy who, throughout his career and in the lead up to that election, kind of positioned himself as the anti-establishment, like throw the bums out, fix it all candidate. And he does it through a particular brand of right wing anti-democratic politics. He's extremely anti-left. He's kind of rooted in Brazil's Cold War era anti-communism politics. He views the left as this sort of like corrupting force of a particular Brazilian identity, which for him is obviously white, macho, religious, and conservative. So he, he targets things like LGBT rights. He was very openly against the left's efforts to do affirmative action policies that help Black Brazilians and minority Brazilians access college and jobs and things that they have long been shut out from. And he really seized on this sort of fear in Brazil at the time of rising rates of violent crime. He promised to unleash police to kill even more than they already do. And Brazilian police are even more violent, significantly more violent than police in the United States. And he took advantage of a growing evangelical base in Brazil that is ardently conservative, particularly on social issues, but also on many other issues. And it just kind of all mixed together to propel this guy who, for his entire career, had been on the fringes of Brazilian politics to the highest office in the land. And since then, it's, it's kind of, he's pushed Brazil farther and farther to the right on any number of issues leading up to now. And he's followed the Trump playbook through the COVID pandemic and then into the election to the point that even by the time the January 6th insurrection took place in the United States, many people in Brazil basically saw it as a warning sign for the future for their elections that took place last week. So they've known this was coming. There's been fears of this for two years now, and now we're on the cusp of it and right in the middle of a tense election that's basically the biggest test for this country's democracy since they came back to democratic rule almost four decades ago. So, Travis, what should we make of these results in this first round? 
round of voting. I mean, I, it, just as, as someone who doesn't know very much about this, my sense was that the polls were suggesting that there was going to be like a Lula blowout. Maybe he would avert a runoff. That Bolsonaro was just really unpopular. Instead, it ends up with Lula getting 48.4% of the vote next to Bolsonaro with 43.2. So obviously Lula way ahead there, but enough to not have a, a runoff. And I think closer than people anticipated. What do those results tell us about Bolsonaro's popularity in Brazil? So I think there's two sort of competing narratives coming out of the first round vote. It kind of depends on where your pers- what your perspective is. It's obvious that Bolsonaro outperformed the polls somewhat. There's a debate here kind of about how much he outperformed them. It's, it wasn't so far outside the margin of error as to be an out-and-out total miss, but he was certainly stronger than I think people thought. It's As I mentioned, it's it's very rare for Brazilian elections to end in the first round. And so even, even as the final polls showed Lula on the cusp of a potential first round win, the broad expectation here was that it was going to a second round. And so some of the concern or some of the the reaction that you've seen is mostly that Bolsonaro proved a little bit stronger than people thought he would be. The other narrative, though, is if you look at this through a traditional and historical political lens, Lula is still, I think, a substantial favorite in this election. He's the front runner. It would be, I think, still a little bit shocking for him to lose. And his performance was pretty solid in the first round. The 48% number that he achieved is very near the majority that would have ended it in the first round. It's also right about on target of where he was expected to be. It's the best performance for a a challenger in the first round to an incumbent since Brazil's return to democracy. And he's 6 million votes ahead. So he drastically outperformed Bolsonaro. He's the favorite going into it. If you look at it through that lens only, I think you'd have to be optimistic about his chances. The flip side, though, is that the left here and a lot of observers who are worried about the democracy saw a first round victory or a definitive first round margin between the two candidates as basically the best way to repudiate Bolsonarismo and ensure that or reduce the chances that there would not be direct challenge to the election and the results. That if Bolsonaro was down 10 or 12 points, it would be very, very difficult for him to challenge the result and carry out a scenario much like the one we saw unfold in the United States two years ago. Now, I think a lot of the concern or the tension is not necessarily about Lula's chances. It's about what might unfold over the next four weeks going into the runoff. The fact that far-right candidates who are aligned with Bolsonaro performed much better than many people expected they would down the ballot, and that Bolsonaro might be a little bit more powerful and emboldened to A, potentially win re-election, but also B, and more likely, contest the results and foment some sort of chaotic scenario that really puts the democracy at risk. It's so interesting. The morning after that election, I saw a clip from Steve Bannon's War Room show where he was already comparing Bolsonaro's, I guess, failure to win that round to Trump's loss and describing it as theft. And I was wondering if you're seeing many American narratives, many people sort of trying to prime this story of Bolsonaro being cheated, almost like a Brazilian stop the steal. It's tough. There's, it's obviously, it's already happening here. There are people in Brazil 
Bolsonaro supporters who who believed he was going to win in the first round. He said Bolsonaro, despite the polls, said all along that he believed he was going to win in the first round. The polls were wrong. He had the people on his side. And they, a lot of his supporters believe that there's an aspect to the Brazilian right wing that is will be familiar to Americans, that there is a sort of alternative reality aspect in terms of consistent doubt of the media, consistent antagonism towards institutions and polling and a, a media ecosystem that creates a narrative that is just not supported by facts or reality. They're already using the kind of perceived polling myths to bolster that. And I would expect that in the United States and, and specifically among kind of Trump's most hardcore supporters and advisors, they will pick that up as well going going into the second round. Jason Miller, the former Trump advisor, has been to Brazil multiple times in an attempt to build links with the Bolsonaro movement and to sell and attract users for his new social media platform. <laughs> get her, get her. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, Tucker Carlson was here. Bannon has called it the most important election in the world this year. So there's a lot of attention from kind of MAGA world on Brazil. And, and even before that, the American Conservative Union has already started three or four years ago a CPAC Brazil. Eduardo Bolsonaro, who is uh, the son of the president and a congressman, is a Bannon ally and acolyte. There's So there's a lot of links between the two. I'm not sure how significant it is. I, th I think the Bolsonaros, they obviously follow the Trump playbook. They have studied the January 6th insurrection and the response to the 2020 election very closely. They have ideas, I think, about why Trump failed and how they might succeed instead. But I think they're really capable and interested in doing it on their own. They like the perception that they're very closely linked to the American right. They've obviously played into those links and built those links. But, you know, the Bolsonaros are veterans and they also, they're trying to kind of improve on what the MAGA movement failed at ultimately. And so I don't think they necessarily need the United States to back this up, but they certainly enjoy the support from the right wing in the United States, including Trump's endorsement right before the election this weekend. So one difference you alluded to earlier was the fact that Brazilian police are even more aggressive than U.S. police, and they seem pretty partisan toward Bolsonaro. And you had some reporting on how that could influence the election. Can you spell out a little bit uh, the role of police in supporting Bolsonaro there? Sure. So the background a little bit is that there have been concerns throughout the Bolsonaro years about his close links to the Brazilian military, which, as I mentioned, during the Cold War overthrew a de democratically elected government. So there's a history of coups here. The military largely receded from domestic politics until the last few years, and they've come roaring back into it. But a military coup attempt or anything like that is is a pretty remote possibility here. It's it's just not most experts say it's very unlikely the institutional armed forces are not going to involve themselves in the dispute and it's not the chief source of concern. The police, by contrast, in Brazil are a larger force in sheer numbers. They are quite a bit less professionalized than the military, and they are significantly less institutionalized. The police, the military police in particular, are 
organized by state. So there are 27 different military police units. And the level of professionalization and institutionalization varies significantly between the states. What we know about them is that they are extremely violent. Brazil's police kill somewhere around 6,000 people a year. The overwhelming majority of those are Black Brazilians. Rio de Janeiro, for instance, the police kill more people each year than the police across the entire United States do, even though the population of Rio is like 120th of the U.S. population. The concern around the election is that the police forces the rank and file of the police tend to express more doubt in the election system and more support for Bolsonaro's conspiracies about the election system than other segments of the population. And also, the scenario that has been kind of rattling around in the brains of some observers here is that in a dispute, perhaps in one state or the other, the police could crack down on leftist protesters or intervene in a disputed scenario in a way that causes chaos. I'm not sure how likely that is. It's something, the fact that the possibility even exists is obviously alarming for the democracy. And even going forward, the police play a significant role in politics now. The number of police candidates has increased over the last few years, increased sharply, and it plays into sort of this growing ultra-conservative, far-right, violent version of politics that seems likely to pose a risk to Brazilian democracy going forward, no matter the outcome of the election on October 30th. That was true and obvious before Sunday, the strength of the Bolsonaro vote and the strength of the far-right candidates farther down the ballot that was obvious from Sunday has made it even more of a concern. So I think Bolsonaro's relative strength in the election, I think, was surprising to people, to some international people watching from abroad who were maybe hoping to see this aspect of the kind of broader right-wing authoritarianism globally repudiated. What's some good news out of the election and going forward? There is good news. A, if you care about just the general democracy since, as I said, I I think Lula seems on track to win the election. There are obviously a lot of people here who don't want Lula to come back, but many of them have kind of held their nose and voted for him, as especially as he's cast the election as, as a battle between democracy and authoritarianism. Other good news is that the left here has continue to diversify and improve their ability to represent a fuller picture of Brazil. There were candidates this on Sunday who won that were trans. There was a prominent indigenous activist won a, a seat in Congress. You've seen a number of prominent black candidates who've won seats in Congress. And these are communities that in Brazil are significant parts of the population that have been traditionally underrepresented or completely not represented at the highest levels of Brazilian politics. And so on the left in particular, you're starting to see that chain and and improve. And that will make for a more democratic, small d democratic Brazil, right? I think we often tend to talk about the threats to democracy from the perspective of the democratic institutions, like Trump foments a a coup attempt or an insurrection at the Capitol, and that's a blatant threat to democracy. Bolsonaro tears down institutions or erodes institutional democracy. We see that as a threat to democracy, but there's a lot of just basic threats to democratic rights that have also taken place in in both countries 
for instance, in Brazil, Bolsonaro has rolled back the rights and protections of indigenous people. He's rolled back the protections of LGBTQ people. And a lot of, because of his close embrace with the police, there's a lot of feeling among black people that they're more at risk in Bolsonaro's Brazil. And a way to improve the democracy here in the United States and other places is to really increase the representation of those communities in Congress and in the seats of power. That's an uphill battle here, just as it is in the United States. But there were signs over Sundays in Sunday's elections that Brazil continues to move forward on that in key ways. And so the important thing, I think, now in Brazil is making sure that democracy and the institutions do hold in the face of a challenge or an authority threat so that that progress can continue even if it's not as fast as as many people here would like. So Travis, to kind of wrap up here, Trump lost and he's spent the ensuing years moping around Mar-a-Lago, starting Truth Social, mulling a second presidential campaign. If Bolsonaro loses, what do you think is going to happen? Is he going to stick around politics? That's a good question. Much like Trump, Bolsonaro is facing significant potential legal threats if he leaves the presidency. And Brazil has historically has been more open to laying the legal hammer on on former politicians than than we have been in the United States. So he could face the very real risk of going to prison. He said at a campaign rally once that he would not ever go to prison, which has raised the speculation that if he loses, he may leave the country for a little while. Whatever the case Though, I think it's clear from Sunday's elections, Sunday's elections made it even more clear that his version of politics will continue to be a a major force in Brazil. We're not going to go back. Brazil's not going to go back to the days where its electoral politics were dominated by the center right and the center left. Now it is the left and a increasingly Bolsonarista right. We're seeing that already in the way that center-right parties here have have started to align themselves with Bolsonaro in the runoff. The candidates that Bolsonaro supported down the ballot performed very well in key governor's races, in Congress, state legislatures, at every level of politics. So there's an element here similar to Trumpism, even if Brazilian politics are structured very differently than they are in the U.S. There's no two-party system. There's no Republican Party that has been completely co-opted by a leader like Trump or Bolsonaro in Brazil. But it's clear that the right is moving right and that he and his movement and his kind of coarse, vulgar, direct and authoritarian politics are going to sort of define the right wing here going forward. And it's we're not going to go back to this sort of traditional politics where everything is a dispute over how much to spend or how fast to move. Like Much like in the United States, I think Brazilian politics are going to be a struggle for the basic elements of democracy for the foreseeable future. Wow. Yeah, that's the worst kind of parallel to draw to home. But Travis, this is going to be one to watch and we're looking forward to following your coverage. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. All right. And now it's time for Fresh Hell. Will, what's the worst thing that we should be looking out for in the weeks to come? So, Kelly, I spend my time on the Internet and that's pretty much it. (laughs) I spend my time just in the worst places and I say, 
Oh, what can I find for our loyal Fever Dreams listeners? Ooh, ow, ow, this hurts. Ow, but I got to keep going. (laughs) And so last night I was looking at the Gateway Pundit, as I often do, and I found that they have this like 11 page guide for their plans for like what people should do to detect voter fraud in November. And this is the it's laid out in a sort of a very serious way. And I think it's probably going to get picked up by some people and used. I just wanted to highlight this guide because I think it sort of gets it at the root of what an insane nightmare is ahead for electoral workers next month. Because basically this plan is like we need people monitoring the balance at every step of the way. So, for example, we need people at the loading dock. Demand GOP observers be stationed at major ballot transfer locations. This includes the USPS office, the loading dock, and possibly at the print vendors where the ballots are being printed. None of these people are well paid enough to deal with what is coming. We talk a lot about, oh, these poor election workers. Imagine you're the guy who's just like, yeah, I like run the paper factory. I work at Kinko's like, oh, goodness. Yeah. Observers must be allowed at these posts until all ballots have been counted. They're talking about doing this in, quote unquote, every county, wink, wink, I think more likely populous urban counties and counties with a high minority voter base. This 11 page thing, and it is just every step of the way. It's just so crazy. Now, I have to highlight some of my favorite ideas they have. Okay. And I should say, if any of these demands are not granted by local officials, if they say, no, we don't want strangers in where the ballots are printed. (laughs) They say, you got to sue, you got to sue, you get some lawsuits going. So some of my favorite suggestions include demand all delivery vehicles that move ballots be equipped with temporary GPS tracking. These battery operated devices are attached with magnets. Now think about this practically. So now let's say you're in Maricopa County, which inevitably we'll be getting a lot of this in Arizona. So now every truck that is transporting ballots, be they fresh ballots or ballots that have been used to vote, they're demanding, why don't we have a GPS tracker on it? I just bought this on Amazon. Let me stick it on your truck. <laughs> and I think this gets into, for me, like sort of the, we could talk about all the reasons that like these are not really like good faith effort at detecting voter fraud. But the idea that like, if you really were like, we've got to secure this system. Now, my plan is we're going to introduce about a thousand more random people into the process who are just <laughs> sort of looming at every step of the way. And it's sort of like they're walking in and out of buildings and stuff and, and they're tracking the ballot trucks. I mean, it is just crazy stuff. And I think this is, I don't know that GPS tracking will become a big thing in November, but I mean, stuff like this will be and at every step of the way. These elections officials are going to be like, why is this happening to me? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, these people think that they can like watch the ballot truck. Like it's the Domino's delivery truck on the app or something. It's like, oh, it's <laughs> turning down the bend. <laughs> I love that thing. I love that Domino's thing. <laughs> it's so nice. I love transparency, but it's wild to me because these people are going to be vastly dissatisfied with any data they get. And I'm thinking about that, what, 2000 Mules documentary, just complete garbage. But these are people who claim to actually have GPS data related to how ballots were dropped off. And they grossly misinterpreted it, turned it into this vast conspiracy theory that was immediately debunked. And they're fuming mad about it two years after the election. So mad. So I would actually suggest to them for like mental health reasons to maybe take a step away from additional data. Let's 
let's work with the numbers we've already got. Don't introduce new variables because this is really kind of upsetting people. Well, the whole data thing, I mean, it basically the only data they want is data. Your guy won. Until then, it's like, we got to keep getting into, okay, now we have to track the ballots, what have you. If I could just briefly tell a story about the Domino's pizza tracker, though. So there was one day where I was, it was like right after they unveiled the pizza tracker and I was so, so hungry. And I ordered pizza and it said, send a message to the team. And so as they were making it, I sent, <laughs> kind of a joke, I guess. I sent the message, please hurry, I'm hungry. And I was hungry. I was just joking around. And then the delivery guy gets there and he's like, I'm sorry, I got here as fast as I could. I didn't realize they would just, it would just like print it out there. These popped like dominoes <laughs> flashing light on the top. <laughs> oh God, this guy's hungry. <laughs> he ordered a, a whole pizza for himself and he, and he turns out he's hungry. So some of these other ballot ideas. All right, they have this motor home command center idea. Now I love this. H, maybe rent a motorhome for the very problematic tabulation centers. Park it close to the facility as a command center. About $300 a day, maybe less from the right owner. That's just squatting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's like declare yourself the common law resident of the parking lot. <laughs> maybe less from the right owner sounds like they're going to steal it. And then they say, this is hard work, so have some fun too. Now they have a picture here. You can see it in the, the doc here, Kelly. It says, example, motorhome command center. And it looks like something you would do if you were like responding to a hurricane or something. I mean, it looks like really high tech. This looks like maybe like an FBI van where they're driving yeah. around. There's people on headsets, computer terminals. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And I mean, just the idea, gosh, I hope we see some of these out there. I don't think we talked about it on the show. There is this kind of growing trend. And I say growing, I don't know how growing it is, but of tailgating at ballot drop boxes. And, and this happened a little bit, I believe, in Arizona during the primary, where people kind of go and they camp out ominously, I would say, and see if any mules show up. And so, I mean, really, this would take it to the next level, having a motorhome camped out outside an election board and just... It would just be crazy because at least now for these folks counting ballots, the people hectoring you, they have to go home at some point. They have to take a shower. They have to go to sleep. But this they wouldn't have to. I mean, they could just be there all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, there's ways for this to join up with other worrying trends. There's a QAnon splinter group that's recently rented a van that they painted in Scooby-Doo van colors and they drive around to various Trump rallies. I mean, they could just keep this on the road, traveling the highways and byways, hassling people trying to drop off their ballots. It's just really gross. I just love the line. This is hard work. So have some fun too. Oh yeah, sure. I'll have some fun in my motorhome command center. Oh man. I don't know if the GPS thing is going to come true. I don't know if the motorhome thing is going to come true. Although the motorhome thing almost definitely will come true. But just the amount of just absolute weirdness that awaits us in November. If you think, think back to 2020, did we ever think people would be talking about ballots that had bamboo fibers proving that they were printed in China? Or do we think that people would be claiming they were tricked into using Sharpies to mark ballots to that somehow Trump voters only were given Sharpies? I mean, none of that could have been imagined. And that was before all this stuff really got going. So, I mean, I think for me, it is just crazy looking at this stuff. And it's like, they really have nothing. There was no proof of voter fraud in the 2020 election. And it's all just spun up because their dude lost. They just, now we, we just have all these different schemes going. And I know that's kind of at the base of it, but it's just, you got to think about it sometimes and you got to marvel. It's absolutely, it's Groundhog Day. I'm not convinced we will ever leave the 2020 election. We will be relitigating this until I'm well into middle age. Attach a GPS to every voter. Why not? There we go. Oh, no, that's going to show up in the Gateway Pundit like tomorrow. <laughs> now you've done it. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. 
In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.